Welcome to episode number 165 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am online editor for the Northern Miner, and I also help out with social media. I also help out with hosting duties for this podcast. We have a very interesting show for you. It is the time of predictions, of outlooks, of looking into the future. So get out your crystal ball. We are going to join Rory Johnston, and he is one of the preeminent commodity economists in Canada. He works for Scotiabank, and acting editor-in-chief Trish Saywell does a very wide-ranging interview with him, and they talk about all sorts of things, and not just commodities. They talk about the Canada-U.S. dollar relationship. They talk about the Canadian economy, but they do also discuss copper, iron ore, precious metals, electric vehicles. We even asked him about uranium, but he, he unfortunately he didn't have an answer on uranium. But uh, that's how far we went with Rory Johnston. So definitely an interview you want to hear. We had him on about six months ago and he was fantastic. And we had a lot of listeners on that show. So we're really happy to have him back. Speaking of end of year, we have the perfect Christmas gift for the miner in your life. The Art and Humor of John Kilburn, Cartoons from the Northern Miner, which is $34.99 plus shipping. If you would like to learn more about that product, you can just go to northernminer.com slash JK. And if you find you're starting to really run out of time, if you wait a couple of days to listen to this, you can also try a digital subscription to the Northern Miner. That's a little last minute get out of jail free. If you are looking for something still special, still thoughtful, uh, but something you need quick, uh, just go to northernminer.com on the desktop site. And on the very top left, you'll see about, advertise, and subscription. And so just click on subscriptions and there you'll see a nice assortment of options. So there you can order and subscribe to the digital edition or even the print or the executive. So you can see all your options over there. And that is at northernminer.com slash products slash subscribe. Also, we have the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Don't forget about that. They still have tickets available at miningholloffame.ca slash annual dash ceremony. You get tables of 10 for $2,950. So if you want to treat nine of your mining friends to a special night with some of the top mining people in Canada... That sounds like a night on the town, doesn't it? And what a great way to start the new year. January's always uh, set the tone for your new year. Go to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. If you want to get an individual ticket, they are $295, or you can get a ticket for a student. If you are so inclined, uh, there is a link to donate tickets to students. So that is at miningholloffame.ca slash annual dash ceremony. And if you would like to find us online, we are at northernminer.com. If you want to find us on Twitter, we try and keep it pretty active over there. It's at northernminer. And we are also on Instagram, which is growing quite nicely, at the northernminer. And we're on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And before we begin, let's take a look at our third mining minute from Nevada Copper. We would like to thank Nevada Copper for sponsoring this podcast. They have a very interesting project that's going on in Nevada. And yes, it is copper. So let's turn to Nevada Copper's chief commercial officer, Mark Wald, to hear more about what the company is up to at its copper project in Nevada. 
Joining me once again is Mark Wall, who is Chief Commercial Officer for Nevada Copper. And Mark, tell us about working in Nevada. What do you like about working in Nevada? Do you like working in Nevada? Tell us what it's like. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, Nevada really is a great place to work and especially a great place to work if you're in the mining industry. We know that the Fraser Institute has ranked Nevada as the number one uh, jurisdiction for mining in the world. We're also very fortunate to be in the thriving community of Yarrington. This is a great farming district, very successful, a very stable and professional local uh, government apparatus and also county a great community. So it is really a great place to work. And we're also very fortunate that the jurisdiction we're in is very suitable for mining. We have a a very environmentally safe uh, mining methodology. And so we're really feeling good about being in Nevada. That's great. And how do you find the speed of permitting? Have you been happy? Have you dealt a lot with the government in Nevada, with government officials? How is the whole sort of nuts and bolts of making everything happen and getting your permissions and everything? What's that like? It's a great question, Adrian. We're on private ground in our concession in Yarrington. Dealing with the state on permitting, we have a very sophisticated state with a permitting process that is very mature. So when you're dealing in a mature permitting process, there are many things that you need to do in order to move through that process, but it is a very effective and efficient permitting process. So we are very fortunate to be in Nevada and dealing with the state permitting system. Okay, excellent. Thanks again, Mark. And we will catch you in your final installment next week. Turning to the website, we have a new story by Tom as a party, and it's on Chile's state-owned copper company, Cottle Co. They have a new $5 billion project, which is one of the world's largest conveyor systems, which once it's in full operation, 14 kilometers of belts will bring... 140,000 tons of ore a day to surface from huge tunnels carved out beneath Cotalco's giant Chuquicamata pit in northern Chile. Chilean President Sebastian Piñera said in August, quote, this is a leap forward, not just in terms of the 140,000 tons a day, but how it is produced. And apparently this is state of the art, and it's going to keep the mine in production for decades to come, but... Nevertheless, despite this announcement in August and with the wheels turning in October, it sounds like there is a lot of uncertainty at Cottle Co. If we go further in the article, Gustavo Lagos, professor of mine engineering at Chile's Pontificate Catholic University, says, quote, The struggle each year is to produce the same. It is not as easy as people imagine end of quote and apparently it says here the technical challenges at the main projects are immense and there are also strike there is flooding and maybe biggest of all the most serious break on Cottleco's ambitions is a lack of cash required by law to hand over all its profits to the Chilean state more than a hundred billion dollars since nationalization in 1971 Successive governments have returned less than 10% of this amount to the miner. 
In comparison, most larger mining companies invest at least half their profits, notes Juan Olguin, president of the Federation of Copper Workers, the umbrella organization for Codicles Workers Unions. Pinera's predecessors tried to improve the situation. Following changes to Codelco's corporate governance in 2009, Michelle Bachelet agreed to inject $3 billion into the company between 2014 and 2019, allowing it to continue investing through the slump in metal prices. But further capitalizations look unlikely. Huge anti-government protests since October have forced Pinera to ramp up welfare spending to quell the unrest straining government finances. And then later in the article, it says, compared to the other pressing issues facing Chile's politicians, expanding the welfare state, stabilizing government finances, and agreeing on a new constitution, Codelco is not a priority. But without action, the source of much of Chile's recent prosperity could soon be at risk. And we have a quote from Alejandra Wood, who is executive director of CESCO, Kesco, a mining think tank. Faced with increased social demands where the state needs to find fresh resources, the situation does not look very promising for Codelco. And she continues later, there is a lack of long-term vision for this milk cow, which grows thinner with each year that passes. We are almost on the threshold of an emergency. So yeah, you can find the whole story on northernminer.com. It is our headline, State-Owned Codelco Struggles to Maintain Output. Also on the website, what else do we have? We have a metals commentary. And this is actually quite interesting in the way that it relates to our upcoming interview here with Rory Johnston. And it also sort of ties into this Codelco story and its metals commentary. Trade war brightens copper outlook. It says here that U.S. President Donald Trump signed off on a phase one trade deal with China on December 13th to avert a planned new round of tariffs on $160 billion of consumer goods. The news sent copper rallying to a several month high of $6,170 per ton or $2.80 per pound and generated renewed optimism for the red metals fundamentals heading into 2020. Consensus forecasts for copper are guardedly bullish heading into next year. Along with most of the base metal suite, copper struggled in 2019, largely due to global trade war concerns and muted global industry activities that consumed the metal. Prices dropped to multi-year lows of $2.53 per pound in early September, and the metal has not seen $3 per pound since mid-2018. It continues almost two years of trade war rhetoric between China and the U.S., along with protectionist sanctions levied on multiple international fronts, are flagged as the main reasons behind copper's lackluster market performance. Slumping industrial growth weighed heavily on global demand, particularly in China, which has recently posted multi-year low industrial production growth rates. China represents about 50% of global copper consumption. It continues, contrary to copper's weak performance, tightness in physical supply has dropped to decade-plus lows, Global inventories and warehouse stocks have slipped to the 589,000 ton level, or about nine days of global consumption. And Haywood Securities mining analyst Pierre Vaillancourt says in an interview, quote, I think the biggest boost for copper might come from the supply side. Codelco, we saw, has cut back its investment in development capex to build out its mines, so there's a risk that Chile may no longer even be the top copper 
producer. When you look at new projects, the timelines are getting longer. The regulatory issues and social issues, especially, are impinging on the ability to start up new production. There's a good underpinning for the metal and for bigger companies, and it's hard to replace production, which is why we see First Quantum now in play. Yeah, so Coddleco comes back up here in this further article. You see how everything's kind of connected. I mean, this story connects into our previous story by Tom Azapardi on Chile, and it also connects to our interview with Rory Johnston. Bart Malek, who's head of commodity strategy at TD Securities, he weighs in in a 2020 Commodities Outlook note, quote, Notwithstanding the potential for resurgent demand growth in 2020, copper markets are still likely to see a surplus next year. We expect that positive mine supply growth of nearly 2% will more than offset demand growth as Chinese consumption underwhelms in the first half of the year. Meanwhile, the U.S.-China trade war will likely linger far beyond 2020, irrespective of whether a phase one trade deal will be struck. And he sounds an optimistic note on copper's near-term performance. Quote, prices are driven by changes in growth and relative changes in supply-demand balances rather than the outright level of consumption growth. We think prices will be supported by an inflection point in growth, which could reinvigorate investor appetite into a potential reflation trade, a trade in which the red metal is an industry favorite. And he continues. So you can check that out on northernminer.com. We also have another strategist there, Nikki Shields from Scotiabank, who probably works in the same department as Rory Johnston. And there's just a little last part I want to add, just on our China theme. And I just wanted to highlight this last part of the article, which definitely turned my eye. We were discussing China in the last episode or two, and so I wanted to just touch on that theme. And so on this copper metals commentary, it says here, recently, China's Zhengzhi Copper Company purchased an 18% shareholding in First Quantum, becoming the company's largest shareholder. Shares in the major copper producer have rallied since Zhengzhi acquired its position and have risen over 20% since early December to the $14 per share level. And yeah, I was looking at a chart of First Quantum, and it's trading at $13.47 on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And back in August, it was trading for $7.99. I mean, that's almost, it's a little more than half of what it currently is. And so it's been rising steadily ever since. And now it's had a nice bump in December. And it is at $13.47. More developments on the copper side of things. And further, I mean, I think if you look at the trends of 2019, looking back, I think we could say M&A was definitely a trend because it really seems to be heating up. There's stories every week practically now of a new merger or buyout. And here's another one, Equinox Gold to buy Lee Gold in U.S. $578 million deal. It says here, Equinox Gold is the latest gold miner to acquire a rival and consolidate its portfolio. The company is offering $769.3 million Canadian, or $578 million U.S., to purchase Lee Gold Mining. This offer, which implies a no-premium consideration of $2.70 per share, will add Lee Gold's four mines in Mexico and Brazil to Equinox's portfolio, which consists of two mines in California and one in Brazil, the mining veteran Ross Beatty, who is chairman of Equinox and Pan American Silver, 
will lead this new entity. And the deal includes a $670 million financing with Bidi and Mubadala Investment Company, the government of Abu Dhabi's sovereign wealth fund, as cornerstone shareholders. And we have a quote from Ross Bidi. This merger will create one of the world's largest gold companies operating entirely in the Americas. Our large scale will provide improved liquidity, greater asset and country diversification, and a lower risk profile for all shareholders. This is the kind of gold company investors want today. So that is Equinox and Lee Gold. And that is also available on northernminer.com. And finally, on the website, we have one more deal that is more just a consideration. Endeavor Mining and Sentiment consider merger. Endeavor Mining and Egypt-focused miner Sentiment have agreed to assess the merits of a merger that would create a strong mid-tier gold company with a market value of almost $4 billion, an annual output of more than 1.2 million ounces. And this announcement follows weekend talks in Perth, Australia, between Endeavour's Chief Executive Sebastian de Montessou and Sentiment's Chairman Joseph Joseph L. Ragui. The meeting was arranged after Sentiment rejected Endeavour's $1.9 billion all-stock takeover bid earlier this month, saying it did not offer enough value to its shareholders. And it also tied into the security theme that we've been discussing. It also noted a business combination would, would expose the company to the deteriorating security situation in Burkina Faso, as almost half of Endeavor's gold resources are located in the West African country. No small issue. At least 37 civilians were killed and more than 60 wounded when gunmen ambushed a convoy transporting workers of Canadian gold miner Samafo in eastern Burkina Faso in November. The Toronto-listed miner, which is ultimately seeking to gain control of sentiment Sukari gold mine in Egypt, said a reciprocal due diligence exercise would be a critical precursor to determining whether a deal could be agreed on. And there's a quote from Endeavour that says the objective would be allowed to both companies to further understand each other's asset. And just finally here, Sakari Goldmine is a 500,000 ounce a year operation and one of the world's top 10 gold deposits. However, the company has struggled with a series of operational issues at the mine, which have weighed on the asset performance and on Sentiment's share price. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. prices, we'd like to thank our friends at infomine.com for their continued supply of these numbers. If you ever want to find them yourself, just go to Google and put in metal prices and infomine, and this will be the first page that appears. And on December 17th, we have gold at $1,478.58. This is $12 higher than last week, but still below $1,500. Silver is at $17.07 per ounce. That's about 40 cents higher than last week and 7 cents higher than two weeks ago. So silver, if you look at the last six weeks of our quotes, 
It's been a trading range between 1677 and 1707, and it's just been bouncing back and forth each week. So platinum continues to go higher. You might remember Jeffrey Christian's prediction that it would struggle up to 1000 in 2020. And this week, it's at $931.91, and that is $26 higher than last week when it was at $905. And palladium is going parabolic here. It's at $1,992.31, flirting with $2,000, and is $102 higher than last week. When I started this podcast in July. It was at $1,555.26. Today, it is at $1,992.31. Forget gold $2,000. We're talking palladium $2,000. So isn't that interesting? Let's see where it goes. Jeffrey Christian, he thought it would top out in the $18 to $1,900 range. And I It's funny, like that was only, the interview was maybe two or three weeks ago, and here we are at 1992. It shows how quickly things can move. And on December 13th, copper is at $2.79. I guess a little bump on the trade war. It's up 13 cents. Aluminum is at 80 cents, which is one cent higher than last week. Lead is at 88 cents, which is three cents higher than last week. Nickel is at $6.42, which is... 33 cents higher than last week. Tin is at $7.80, which is 15 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is at $15.65, which is 23 cents lower than last week. And zinc is at $1.03, a penny higher on the week. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Scotiabank's Rory Johnston. He is a commodity economist covering energy and metal markets for Scotiabank's economics department. His research includes the Scotiabank Commodity Price Index, which is a monthly assessment of developments affecting the prices of major Canadian export commodities. He also contributes to Scotiabank's Global Outlook, the department's flagship quarterly forecast, as well as notes on various topics of interest to the Canadian commodity sector. He recently spoke to the Northern Miners acting editor-in-chief, Trish Saywell, about his outlook for 2020. And here is a recording of that very wide-ranging and interesting conversation. start off with the macro stuff. I mean, it's been a crazy year, certainly with all the things that are going on with the U.S.-China trade war and the impeachment hearings. And I just wanted your take on some of the macro issues that we're facing. Yeah, so obviously the macro level, you know, we're facing on many different vectors, in some ways unprecedented levels of headline risk and lots of uncertainty, as you mentioned, from the trade war to security issues around the Middle East to impeachment and everything in between. But I think broadly, so I think there are two big things that are kind of weighing on macro sentiment right now. And I think, wow, we've, we've rebounded a little bit over the last couple of months because of some positive trade developments. I think we're still in what I would call a generally bearish macro environment. So I think the two things that are really doing that are, on the one hand, we're still coming off. If you would recall a couple of years ago, if I was on this, I would have been talking about global synchronized growth. The entire global economy was accelerating from 2017 into 2018. And a lot of that was because of 
the stimulus that came on both from China and from the widening fiscal deficit in the United States. So the two world's two largest economies were really engaging in fairly, you know, sizable stimulus. And that really helped boost and buoy the entire global economy on the upside. But because of what happened with stimulus spending, they didn't necessarily create new demand, they borrowed demand from the future. And now we're in a phase a little bit of paying that back. That we're just coming off of those highs in 2017 and 2018. So 19 was going to be a little bit of a slow year and probably into 20 as well, even before you add on what I think is the other major point, which is the trade war. Whether it was, you know, trade uncertainty related to the new NAFTA or USMCA or whichever moniker you choose to go with, there was that initially. And then things really started to fall off around early to mid 2018 when the U.S. trade war with China really kind of started, uh, you know, really picked up speed. So between late 2016 and even early 2016, and then to mid-2018, you had most risk assets, whether they be oil or copper or the rest of the base metals altogether, were all kind of enjoying this bull run. And they actually ran, copper prices ran from around $2 a pound all the way up to 330 a pound or more, well ahead of where we thought it should be based on you know prevailing fundamentals. But then everything kind of fell out of bed and the trade war ramped up and macro sentiment really soured. And you basically had people and investors in particular channeling those, those bearish feelings, that, that bearish sentiment into metals prices, primarily through, through copper, but it brought the entire complex down. Now, the thing I do want to stress is that the global economy, while a bit slow right now, isn't, you know, slow by historical standards. And the global consumer remains relatively strong. You know, consumers, particularly in North America, are in a very healthy place. You have very tight labor markets. You have people getting raises and wages rising. So the consumer is doing pretty well. The challenges have been on the business side, on the investment side. That's where I think the trade war really plays uh, and really kind of takes its biggest, you know, whack, if you will, is, you know, businesses are used to risky environments. You know, they, they operate in lots of different risky environments. But this moment, you know, on the trade side is, is so uncertain and so in some ways unpredictable. The businesses have kind of throttled back investment and they can kind of see the dust settle. As a great example, like a company that would have started pulling back its supply chain exposure between the United States and China because of this ramping up trade war. And let's say they started repositioning some of that supply chain into Mexico because, oh, well, we just finished a trade deal there, so that'll be safe. And then the president and the White House come out and announce that they're ramping up tariffs on all Mexican exports. So that didn't end up taking place, but it's the type of thing that happens, you know, seemingly at the, at the drop of a hat. And I think that really spooks businesses that are looking to spend, you know, billions of dollars investing in assets that are going to have a very long lifespan. So they, they don't know if something's going to be a money winner or a money loser because of this heightened uncertainty. So I think that just going into 2020, we're going to have that uncertainty remain more or less level where we think it is right now, a little bit down from its height earlier this year, from its highs rather. Um, but we do think that that's going to remain straight through 2020 uh, into the presidential election. And then regardless of who wins, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats take the White House, um, then I think that then you will start to have some of that uncertainty gradually decline, whether that's because there's a different president in the White House or just because by that stage, businesses will become much more used to dealing with the uncertainty. They will have, you know, insured themselves and they will bolster their supply chains against this type of disruption. So we do think that while, while fairly weak today, 
Uh, we do think that, you know, there's still strong foundations of the global economy. And we think that those will really start to bear fruit, you know, in early 2021 and late 2020, when we start to actually get some of that uncertainty falling back and businesses start to ramp up that investment again. Okay, 2020, 2021, you said? I really think that the economy will really start to accelerate again in 2021, globally. Uh, what's the outlook on the U.S.-Canadian dollar? The Canadian dollar, we see weakening a bit or kind of remaining weak right now, but kind of strengthening over the course of 2020. Again, as some of those risk assets begin to recover and as a tolerance for risk returns to the market, the Canadian dollar often trades a bit more as a risk asset in this. So we do think that that'll begin to tighten you know, give or take, you know, 132 right now, uh, USD to CAD. And we expect that to fall to about 125 by the by the exit of 2020 and kind of remain flat there out. Okay, well, do you want to jump into the commodities then? So the trade war, I think, and broadly, you know, the trade war is a proxy for this, this bearish macro sentiment, is going to remain more or less level and, you know, level to flat through most of 2020. But we do think that, you know, if we get some kind of, easing of the tariffs, some kind of progress on the trade deal to avoid the upping or when the tariffs begin to take effect on December 15th. I think that we're, our basic concern is that we avoid that that deadline. They either push it back or you cancel it altogether and announce some kind of this, you know, phase one, this progress we're making. So we do think that there's a little bit of, of near-term upside for the entire, you know, metals complex. But, you know, after 2020, you let metals start to kind of resume their prior fundamentally driven trading paths, if you will. So if we look at copper, we had mild, you know, we had a mild deficit in 2018, a mild surplus in 2019. We think there's going to be a mild deficit in 2020. Um, and, and if growth starts to accelerate, I think that's going to be, you know, that deficit's going to be relatively persistent. But if the growth continues to slow, then, you know, 2021 could be, could be a surplus again. But we do think that, you know, copper is, you know, right now it's under 280 a pound. It's up from where it was, you know, around 260 a pound even a month or two ago before trading started being positive. But we do think that, you know, prices are going to rise to around $3 a pound uh, and then kind of remain, you know, level there in the low threes for the next couple of years. There are a couple things that are going to, you know, pull on that. There's new, you know, Chinese air conditioning standards that that could shift demand around, and it will likely mean that demand from the air conditioning sector in China, which is a major consumer of copper, is going to be a little bit weaker in the first half of 2020 as they destock some of these older, some of these older units. But we do think that after that, things kind of stabilize. Copper inventories are still relatively low. You know, they're down 60% from where they were in early 2020, 37% lower than than late, uh, you know, Q3 of 2019. So those things remain, you know, positive factors underpinning, kind of putting floors underneath, you know, how far copper can fall if things get bearish again. But, you know, that said, copper sentiment still remains well below where it was when investors were really betting on, um, you know, tighter markets and more global growth in 2018. So we've come a, a far ways down that sentiment. And we do think that right now the, the risk for sentiment for copper is to the upside. That just at this stage, it looks more likely that we're going to add more length to those contracts, which should fit, you know, relatively good things for copper prices going forward. The entire sector has kind of been, you know, underweight uh, since... Uh, call it, you know, June of 2018, when the trade war really started ramping up. The one metal that is is managed to really boost its fortunes, at least temporarily, was nickel. So a lot of where nickel was gaining its strength was was on two major fronts. One, there's this 
constant kind of, particularly early in the year, there was this fervor around EVs and how much nickel EVs were going to require. And there's a lot of you know, positive sentiment there. And the other thing that really helped boost it was uh, the Indonesian government, which had been planning in the coming years to once again restrict the export of unrefined nickel ore, particularly to China, they actually accelerated that. And it, you know now it's going to take effect in you know the beginning of 2020. So there was a little bit of a crunch there and nickel, and nickel balances tightened. But you know going forward, we do think that some of these gains that nickel has made, and yeah, so I mean, and, and nickel prices, just to put those gains in perspective, you've gained you know, between July and September of this year, you gained about 50% in pricing. Uh, so from that big boost. So we've started to pare that back down. Prices are kind of returning to earth. And we do think while overall nickel prices, you know, fundamentals remain very, you know, relatively supportive, inventories are falling quickly. We, we do see deficits continuing. We do think some of this recent price strength has been overdone and we do expect it to come to come back down. Part of what's bringing nickel prices down to earth is you know, a bit of the fizzling of uh, at least the near-term prospects for the electric vehicle sector, you know, after China, uh, you know, Beijing paired back some of these subsidies to the electric vehicle sales in China, sales fell fairly quickly there. So we, you know, these types of things are going to really take the wind out of metals. They're seen as very exposed to uh, electric vehicles, whether it's nickel or cobalt or lithium. All of these commodities have suffered over the past couple of months as those uh, numbers started coming out about the, you know, the post-subsidy or, or weaker subsidies in China and the weight on that sector. Because at this stage, EVs are still very, you know, it's policy exposed sector and policies can change quickly, which, which you know, uh, does bring a bit more sudden movements in these prices. Okay, so do you have a forecast price for nickel in 2020? In 2020, we see prices of about $7.50 a pound for nickel. And then that kind of rises to $8 in the early 2020s and kind of remains flat around there. So, you know, pairing back some of the gains we've made and more of a stabilized price outlook for now. Okay. For copper? Copper prices, we expect prices in 2020 to average about 275 or just higher than they are right now. And the early 2020s, you know, 2021, $3 and then up to 325 in 2022. What about iron ore? So combined, I mean, iron ore... Obviously, the, the big story there has been weaker, weaker supply from Brazil. A lot of it has moved with the currents of uh, steel margins in China, which had been quite weak, have improved very recently. Uh, so prices have jumped back up to about 90-ish dollars a ton for iron ore in China. But we do think those are, are roughly going to ease back down as, as, the, as the sector settles down. We do expect about uh, $72 a ton level in 2020, and that falls to about $65 in 2021, and then $60 in 2022. And that's just as the market, you know, as the steel sector slows, you know, after we get through some of the potential stimulus we can see in China, uh, and we do expect, you know, more and more of that Brazilian supply to come back to the market. So we do think that those things are going to tighten, loosen from their currently tight position going forward. The flip side on on coking coal, which is the other side of the of the steel equation. So coking coal prices spent, you know, a prolonged period earlier this year and before above two hundred dollars a ton on the back of a, of a variety of supply disruptions, you know, predominantly in Australia. Uh, but those prices have fallen about 30% since crashing under that $200 ton level this past summer. Prices right now are around, you know, say, you know, $130, $140 a ton. We do think those prices are going to rise again. Uh, there's some weakness right now. 
Chinese port quotas, uh, you know, aren't letting enough coal into into the into the Chinese uh, domestic space. So that's some of that's getting bulked up and backed up into the into the seaboard market, which is making uh, pricing weaker there. But we do think that's going to turn a corner after those quotas reset in 2020. And we do think that prices are going to gradually kind of climb back to around that $150 a ton level, which is where we see the kind of longer term outlook for met coal on a seaborne marginal cost basis. Okay, so we've covered copper, nickel and iron ore. And then the other one that I think is really interesting right now is what's happening in the zinc market. So zinc is a commodity and and I'm sure you will remember, you know, we had many, many years of deficits in the zinc markets that had finally cascaded in decade high prices in early 2018 before the metals conflict started to weaken on the trade war. So all of those really high prices did exactly what they were supposed to do. They brought a lot of mine supply to to the global uh, kind of supply space. There was a lot of these concentrates, this new ore that was coming into the market. So you would expect that that would quickly translate to metal supply that would start to weaken these pricing. So while prices are down with the entire complex because of the trade war, backwardation in zinc contracts or, you know, the premium you pay for deliveries today versus three months from now, which is a sign of how tight spot markets are. You know, it signals that the zinc market is still very, very tight. You have inventories that are at perilously low levels on the global exchanges and spot contracts. So spot, uh, the spot market remains very, very tight. The issue here mainly is that that concentrate supply growth hasn't yet translated to metal supply growth because there's bottlenecks and it's insufficient throughput in global smelting sectors. So particularly in China, where you have some of these environmental uh, regulations that are forcing some capacity uh, idling in Chinese smelters, this is just further contributing to the fact that not allowing that transmission from the mine to the metal side. So, you know, metals markets, zinc markets, uh, you know, have, 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 you know, it's been vividly evident because of this exaggerated backwardation that things are tight. And we, and, we, and based on the kind of trajectory of that backwardation, it doesn't look like we're, you know, we're probably at least still a few months out until we start to get any kind of real balance in the zinc metal market. But then after that, things start to move into surplus as you finally start to transform that new mine concentrate into metal to bring uh, more or less an end to this bull cycle we've ridden in zinc. We think that prices are going to kind of fall back down a little bit. For zinc, we think that, you know, our forecast is for prices to average about $1.08 a pound in 2020 and then fall to, you know, $1.05 in 21 and then a dollar in 2020 and then 95 cents in 2023. So, you know, before we went from, you know, annual averages for zinc prices moved from under a dollar in 2016 to above a dollar 30 in 2017 and 2018 and reached, you know, their their decade high of, you know, you know, one, one and a half, one, 160 uh, in 2018. But then, you know, prices are going to fall back down to earth. And this is just one of those long run cycles in the, the metal space. And, you know, we, we expected that after those high prices would be followed by some weakness. Would you look at uranium? I don't actually look at uranium, unfortunately. And what about some of the other EV metals like lithium, for example, cobalt? I don't follow them in depth, but, you know, what's generally going on in that sector and, and both lithium and cobalt have experienced, you know, relatively weak 2019s. They're some of, you know, some of the worst performing uh, commodities in the space. Again, this is because of this mismatch between, you know, anticipated hope regarding EV demands and the eventual reality of at times sluggish EV pickup. This relates back to what I was saying about, you know, the rollback of some of those subsidies in China for new EVs. But in, mm-hmm. but you had a lot of companies that were building up capacity in lithium and cobalt markets 
aiming to kind of satisfy that 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 fledgling and, and quickly rising demand from the gold battery and particularly the EV sector. But now because of that slightly slower uptick, now we're expecting that, you know, most global forecasts are showing that we're probably going to remain mildly oversupplied in both materials, probably for the next couple years. After that, you know, just the, the effect of the cumulative growth in EVs will eventually mean that, you know, we start to have very, very tight markets again. But I think we're, we're at this stage going through a period of slightly oversupplied, you know, markets, but more I think it's uncertainty. And the uncertainty relates to how long uh, these various policy initiatives are going to last in the, you know, the subsidy space, how much forward, you know, how much additional policy support will electric vehicles and other kind of, you know, renewables intensive, you know, manufacturing and production will be supported by global governments. And that you know, because of the politics around around climate change policies, this I think is is still a very uncertain outlook. And because of that, we're gonna we're going to have periods of wild ups and downs. I think in both markets, and that'll be tied a lot to you know the latest news about the outlook for the EV industry. Well, what about precious metals? Precious metals on the gold side, we do expect that prices are going to hit their highest in in this coming year, uh, coinciding with the 2020 election in the United States. Uncertainty, I think, is going to be elevated. Uh, even though we don't see overall uncertainty rising uh, from current levels today, we do expect there's, there to be an additional risk premium on precious metals like like gold. Do you have a target price on gold for 2020, 2021? Our latest outlook for gold in, in 2020 to 2021, we're looking at, you know, uh, from an annual average of around $1,400 an ounce in 2019, rising to a, you know, a cycle high of $1,550 an ounce. $1,550, okay. Yes. Uh, and then declining thereafter, you know, dipping down slowly as that global uncertainty begins to wane uh, into 2021, you're looking at more like 1475 in 2021. And then gradually declining back towards a longer term stable, longer longer term stable price of around thirteen hundred dollars an ounce. Okay, so thirteen hundred would be in twenty twenty two ish onwards. Uh, it, a little bit, a little bit slower than that. So you're probably going to have fourteen twenty five in twenty twenty two, and then gradually it, by the mid twenty twenties, kind of re-anchoring itself around thirteen hundred dollars an ounce. Okay. And what about silver then? Silver, we see kind of also hitting a, 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 like a cycle high of around 1875 in 2020, and then declining on a, along a similar trajectory back down towards 1775, and back down towards a longer term average around 1650. And by, by mid it's going to hit a cycle high of $18.75 in 2020, Correct. declining along, along a similar trajectory to $17.75 yep. in 2021. Yeah, and then and then by the mid twenties, when when gold is sitting at about thirteen hundred dollars an ounce, we expect that silver will be in that kind of sixteen to sixteen fifty range. Okay. And that'll be on a combination of things, both global sentiment kind of recovering from its its current bearishness, but also eventually central banks will begin to re-raising interest rates again, and that's what we expect is is going to be the ultimate kind of fundamental driver of gold lower will be higher interest and silver as well for that matter. Okay, so that will be on a combination of things. Combination of, you know, eventually higher interest rates as the global economy steadies itself and global central banks, you know, see, you know, sufficient evidence that they can begin safely raising rates again. But at the same time, you're going to get a little bit of a double whammy with that. that at the same time, that the global central banks will begin to see things as a little safer. So you'll have the, that fundamental driver down of uh, gold prices, which anchor the entire complex. Uh, so as interest rates rise, gold will fall. But at the same time that interest rates are rising, I think you're going to have a less of a risk premium, less of a political risk premium 
on things like gold that, that, that typically are more sensitive to those types of risks. Can you give me your take on these European economies and, and where, where they're at? I don't actually cover the European economies. Broadly, you know, Europe is hurting from the, from the global slowdown. Uh, you know, the traditional driver in Europe, in Germany, is uh, is weak and, and is likely right on the edge of, of some kind of technical recession uh, because of that heavy trade exposure. Meanwhile, uh, countries that have typically been less of a, a growth driver, countries like France, for instance, are outperforming the German economy because they're typically more domestically focused. They're not quite as trade exposed. So countries like that are outperforming right now. The other thing obviously weighing on on the entire kind of European outlook is is what's going to happen with Brexit, which we don't we don't currently have a firm view on. We don't we think that it'll kind of be a slow play. But we mm -hmm. do think, again, that uncertainty definitely you know, weighs down any kind of investment intentions. And what about the Canadian economy then? The Canadian economy, we see having a little bit of a boost in you know, coming out of the federal election. There's going to be some stimulus spending that's going to make its way into the global economy and boost prospects a little bit there. At the same time, you know, you know, after that, however, we do think there's going to be a little bit of a payback period. As I was mentioning earlier, if stimulus increases growth in the front end, you typically do need a little bit of payback in the back end. But then after that, we think that the Canadian economy will more or less stabilize around its potential output level at just below 2%, around 1.8% year on year uh, in the you know uh, early 2020s onwards. We do think that the United States, on a, you know, juxtaposed to the Canadian economy, they had much more of a stimulus boost uh, coming out of, still coming off of the, the, the election and some of that increased federal spending and, and reduced tax rate. Uh, so we do think there's going to be a longer period of payback there, a longer period of subpar U.S. growth. But then that'll also be followed by an eventual return to trend, an eventual return to their potential output, which in the United States, we believe is slightly higher than in Canada. Call it 2% uh, steady state in the United States versus 1.8 in Canada. Thank you again so much. I know it's a busy time of year. We love always to talk to you and get your thoughts. So Perfect. we appreciate well, it. So having me. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rory Johnston. We'd like to thank him once again. And that was done with Acting Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell. I always love this time of year of Outlooks, and I think we're going to have some more coming up here. So check the website at northernminer.com, and feel free to share this with a friend. Leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory and help bump us up the charts there. And until next week, take care.
And I hope you enjoyed that episode on big data and AI, the digital mind of the future. You really see how complicated the whole situation is. It's easy to criticize the mining industry, and the mining industry can do more, but you really see how there's a lot of subtleties to this issue. So I think this discussion really helped bring out a lot of really the complicated aspect of integrating technology into a mine. It's not simply a matter of increasing the budget, okay? That's one component, but there is a lot to it. So... Thank you for joining me this episode. If you want to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, we always appreciate that. Feel free to share it with your friends. We love, uh, you know, the fact that we have a lot of student listeners. Share it with your geology friends. And until next week, take care.